We're going to continue our study of Matthew's Gospel. And today, we're, uh, at last, last week or two weeks ago, we got a few verses into Matthew 18. We're going to continue today um, with the concept of children of God. And um, let me begin with this thought. If you ever want to know how biased parents can be toward their own children, just try coaching a sport. Okay, um, <laughs> you get uh, all kinds of feedback from the parents, uh, namely, how come my kid isn't playing more? How come Johnny isn't starting? And you try and explain, you know, in football, we throw him the ball, he drops it, we hand him the ball, he fumbles it, we put him on the line, they block him into last week. Uh, we make him water boy. He drinks all the water. We can't really find a spot for Johnny. Well, he's the best kid out there. <laughs> um, he's better than all the other kids. Now, rather than seeing that as a negative, I actually see that as a built-in, God-given, protective love that parents have for their children. And today, what we're going to see is that God looks upon those who believe in Christ as his children. He says, they're my kids, and he protects them. Right? So let's take a look at the passage. Does it work here? Oh, we're not working today. Can you just advance me there, Kathy? All right, it's Matthew 18, uh, 4 through 10. And there we go. I'm going to divide it up a little bit. And um, last week we ended on this verse, whoever humbles himself like this child. Remember the, the apostles were saying, who's the greatest? Am I better than so-and-so? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. He grabs a little toddler and he says, whoever humbles himself like this child, puts a little toddler in the midst of them, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Just like a little child is totally dependent on mom and dad for everything, until you realize that you need Christ to be your all in all, you're outside of the kingdom of heaven. But then when you realize, I have nothing to offer, but he paid the full price for me, and you trust in him, you are now in the kingdom of heaven. So um, understand the key to the rest of the passage is understanding that when he talks about these little ones or these children, he's not talking about little kids now. He's talking about believers. Child equals believer. So don't get confused. This really, as much as we love little children, and my wife is the children's director of children's ministry. She's not a child. She's an adult director of children's ministry at Moody. We love kids. This is really not about children's ministry. It's about believers. Now let me add some uh, subtitles here to help us out. In essence, Jesus says this. Do receive little children. Do believe. Do receive believers. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Point one, we're to receive one another. We'll talk about what that means. Point two, don't cause other believers to sin. But whoever causes one of these little ones Notice it says, who believe in me. This is really not talking about children. It's talking about disciples. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me 
to sin. It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptations come. Woe to you who tempt Christians to sin. It'd be better to have a a stone tied around your neck, you know, like a mafia, and dumped into Lake Michigan. And then, speaking of sin, if your right hand or if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. I always find it interesting that um, um, the question is, should you ever mention hell in children's ministry? Well, here Jesus grabs a little kid, says, stand in the middle, and he's talking about hell right in front of the kid. He would have flunked children's ministry, right? (laughs) Then he says, don't despise. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. I heard John MacArthur preach on this. And he goes, this is not about babies. Who goes around despising babies? Um, so it, this is not about little babies. This is the little ones are referring to believers. See that you do not despise one of my disciples, my, one of these believers. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. You go, what's that all about? All right, well, let's talk about this. In fact... Just for the sake of the flow of of the sermon, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to highlight this last sentence, and I'm going to move it up to the top. So now here's our outline. Don't despise, do receive, do do not cause to sin. Don't despise believers, do receive believers, don't cause believers to sin. All right, so let's talk about don't despise. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. What's it mean? See to it that you do not despise one another. Now, you go, well, why would we as Christians be told not to despise one another? We love one another. We wouldn't despise other believers. Really? (laughs) Really? You know, there's a song by Casting Crowns called We Are the Body. I won't sing it for you, but look at this. It says, it's crowded in worship today as she slips in trying to fade into the faces. The girl's teasing laughter is carrying farther than they know, farther than they know. In other words, here's a young girl slips into the worship service. She's new, and the other girls in the youth group Oh, do you see her? Oh, little gossipy, little judgmental. And she hears them laughing at her. But if we are the body, why aren't his arms reaching? Why aren't his hands healing? Why aren't his words teaching? And if we are the body, why aren't his feet going? Why is his love not showing them there is a way, there is a way? A traveler is far away from home. He sheds his coat and quietly sinks into the back row. The weight of their judgmental glances tells him that his chances are better out on the road. 
paints a picture of a clicky church or clicks within a church being judgmental and not receiving, not loving, and actually despising one another. Have you ever gone home from church, gone home from small group or church event, gossiped about the other people, made fun of them, ridiculed them, spoken with contempt about another believer in this church, then you have sinned against the Lord's little one. This is exactly what Jesus is rebuking us for. In essence, he's saying, these are my kids. Don't mess with my kids. Now you say, oh, but there's, there's so much to make fun of. Right? Well, the issue is not whether we don't have plenty of stuff to be made fun of. There is plenty of stuff. I mean, if you just wanted to brainstorm about me, I'm sure you could come up with you know, days of material. Okay. The issue is not, is there stuff to make fun of? The issue is, whose kids are you messing with? Right? What about this? For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, this is where the idea of the guardian angel comes in and that children have guardian angels. Well, let me do a little bit of correcting. Um, this isn't just about children. This is about all of God's little, little ones. Okay? And it's not necessarily that there's a one-to-one correspondence between uh, each believer and an angel. It just could simply mean that there's God's children and there are God's angels. All right? But here's the idea. Um, When a king is surveying his kingdom, the idea of of him having attendants who are staring at him in the face, and the minute he sees something, they're, yes, sir, what would you have us do? And he sends them to do it. That's the idea. The the closest I I can relate, when I played football, um, I was one of the guys who ran in and out after every play, the coach needs to send in a play. And I played guard. And um, after I did my play, I would run off, and a new guard would come in with a play. And then I, my job was to stand next to the coach. Now, wherever that coach was, sometimes he's running down the field, and, and I'm supposed to be running after him. And um, then the play would be over, and he, he called me Smitty. Smitty, where are you, Smitty? Oh, there you are. Okay. And he would grab my face mask, and he'd go, okay, here's what we're going to run. And he would always mix it up. He'd go, all right, we're going to do a two left. No, make that a four right. No, make that, switch that. We're going to pat, no, we're going to do. And after he got through all that, I'm supposed to remember the play. And then I would run out, and then I would goof it up. And then I would tell it to the quarterback, and he would goof it up. And the odds that we would actually run the play that was called were, you know, very, very, very far. Um... But I'm supposed to follow the coach wherever he goes and go run with the message. What this is saying is God in heaven is intensely focused on his children. 
And his attendants, his angels, are watching his face. And when one of his kids gets messed with, he sends an attendant, an angel. You don't want to be on the bad side. All of heaven is watching as God is intensely focused on his children. You know what? As I read this passage this week, I was convicted about how grievous this is. And, I th- and you know what? I don't have anybody in mind, but I do think God wants me to say, Valleybrook, if any of you goes home and you're gossiping about anybody else and you're critical about other people and you're contentious about other people, you need to repent. You need to stop grieving the heart of God because we're all his kids. And you don't get to mess with his kids. Ah, but nobody will hear. Really? His angels hear. God hears. You see, we're not junior high. We don't get to be contentious and divisive and clicky. God expects us to love one another, not just when we're gathered, but in the car on the way home, and at lunch after church, and after small group. And yes, there's plenty of things that can be criticized, but God Almighty expects you to shut your mouth and love one another, right? So some of us, I think, need to repent. And it's such an ingrained lifestyle that it needs to be a deep, deep repentance. Right? Do you gossip? Do you have contempt for other believers? God's heart is grieved over that. Now, That's the negative. Don't despise. Let's take a look at the positive. Do receive. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. What what does this mean? Well, to receive, to to warmly embrace, to, to love, to take into your heart. You know, what this is saying, Jesus is saying the way you treat other believers... Just because they're believers is the way you're treating me. Remember, the Apostle Paul, before he was Paul, he was Saul, the Christian hater. And he persecuted Christians. And he killed the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And he's on the road to Damascus to kill other Christians. And Jesus himself appears to Saul. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? And you would think... He would say, why are you persecuting believers? He doesn't say that. He says, why are you persecuting me? Wait a minute. I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting Christians. Jesus is saying, you persecute them, you persecute me. You receive them, you receive me. We are to receive and embrace and love other believers, not necessarily because they have anything to be loved about but simply because they are God's children. That's it. Let me show you, I I call this an example of um, for the sake of someone else's love. For the sake of someone else's love. King David, before he was king, 
The first king of Israel was another guy named Saul, and he was a bad egg. Saul was crazy. He was demon-possessed, and he tried to murder David. Now, turns out that David's best friend is King Saul's son, Jonathan. So he's, the crazy king's trying to kill David, yet David's best friend is Jonathan, Saul's son. Now, Saul and Jonathan die, and David becomes king. And David, as he's getting situated, he says, Hey, are there any descendants of Saul and Jonathan around? Now, usually when a king asked that, it was because when he stepped into the position of kingship, if the previous king had descendants, they were a threat to the throne. So in many cases, you know what the king would do? Either banish them or kill them so there were no threats to the throne. So he goes, hey, are there any descendants of Saul and Jonathan around? And his attendants, looking at his face, say, yes, there's a guy named Mephibosheth. Try to say that. You ever name your kid Mephibosheth? I'd like to see a Mephibosheth. Okay. And Mephibosheth was crippled. He had two crippled feet. And he was living on the other side of the Jordan. So you get the impression that he's living in a slum. He's a descendant of King Saul. So um, this isn't going to be good for him. And he is called before King David. And here's what happens. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And at this point, he's thinking he's going to kill me right here. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. This is for the sake of love. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. So uh, he comes before him and he says, I'm not going to kill you. In fact, all the land that Saul used to own, it's yours now. And every night you eat with me at my table. And he paid paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Wow. Why would you treat me this way? Because I'm so wonderful? No. For the sake of your father, Jonathan. This is called grace. It's undeserved favor. Now, get this. If you're in Christ, you're Mephibosheth. We're all Mephibosheths. Crippled. Unable to earn. Totally dependent on others. But God, for some reason, in his grace, adopts us. Now, if we understand that our favor is undeserved... What right do we have to treat other undeserving Mephibosheths with contempt? In fact, 
When we show others contempt or have contempt in our hearts, I don't think we understand grace. I think we think we're pretty hot. Right? Showing contempt for others shows you don't understand grace. Now, the church is made up of all kinds of different people who are not like you. They're not like you socially. They're not like you economically. They're not like you intellectually. They're not like you ethnically. And God is glorified when people who are not like one another come together and love one another. Which is why the whole, um, the, the whole homogeneous church concept um, the church growth movement is built on building small groups and building churches upon the same market share. Study the, the demographics of an area and build a church that draws and appeals to people who all alike one another. And while that may be a great marketing principle, it's an abomination to God's church because God is glorified when people who are not like one another come together and still love one another. Right? Look what Jesus says. You know, when you, when you have a, a gathering, maybe you're going to watch the bear game this afternoon or you're going to have a party, who do you invite? Well, people whom I like and people who are like me. Here's what Jesus says. He said to the man who had invited him, he was at a party. And he went to bear games. Right? When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Well, isn't that why you invite them? Because then it's their obligation to invite you next time. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, oh, there's Mephibosheth, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So, little challenge for us today. Um, we're a young church. We're about, oh, 10. Yeah, about 10. Actually, today is the exact uh, it was actually October 6th, 10 years ago. Today's October 7th. Okay? But even in a small church, the idea, it's easy to say, well, I've found my friends that I'm comfortable with. I've found my small group. I've found friends that, you know, we can do this together or that together. And that's great. I, think that, I don't think there's anything wrong with finding best friends. But it's also very easy to come to church and just be comfortable with your buddies. And I want to challenge you. Is there somebody, is there a family that you haven't gotten to know yet? Invite them over. Invite them out to Portello's. We could clear the whole Sam's Club front there and just eat hot dogs together if you want. Okay? But here's my challenge. Between now and Christmas... Can we make a concerted effort to get out of our comfort zone and mix with people that you don't know yet? Or maybe they've been going to church for a long time, but they're in a different small group or a different ministry. Now you go, well, I'm shy. Oh, that's right. Jesus gave a little footnote that says, this doesn't apply if you're shy. 
So who are you gonna who are you gonna get to know that you don't know? Who are you gonna get to know that you might not just really you know feel comfortable with? Right? Or you could go find a church where everybody's the same and everybody's like you and everybody but that's not as glorifying to God as a bunch of as as Mephibosheth said, a bunch of dead dogs. Bunch of dead dogs who have been brought to life, and we're a bunch of mutts who, who don't say, well, I only hang out with golden retrievers. You know, no. A bunch of dogs who play with each other. That's glorifying to God, right? All right. Now, um, next point. He says, don't cause these little ones to sin. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Whoa, this is strong warning about causing people to sin. Now, um, let me give you three ways that we can cause others to sin. And this isn't an exhaustive list. I just brainstormed on three ways we can cause others to sin. Amazingly, they all begin with the same letter, okay? Um, first of all, just simply through enticement. We can say, come on, what's the big deal? You know, uh, the Apostle Peter says um, the world, the unsaved world, tries to entice you to sin, and they can't understand why you don't. First Peter 4.4, uh, 4, they, the world, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. You get this at, uh, at work? Oh, prudy pants over there won't laugh at our joke. Come on! Or at high school? Come on, join in. You know, think about this. I know we all have our different vices, but most kids don't end up smoking and drinking without there being some enticement from others. Okay? Very rarely does a junior high kid who's never been exposed to smoking go to Walmart and say, oh, I want to get a football, and I want to get some trading cards, and I th oh, what are these? Marlboros. I think I'll try some of these. <laughs> Man, are those good. I think I'm going to take this up. Right? Isn't it usually some of the bad boys and the bad girls get together and cigarettes. Whew, pass it around. Come on, don't be a wimp. And you give in to enticement. Right? Don't be such a prude. Now, we as Christians can do the same thing. You know, uh, the Apostle Paul warns us about not being a stumbling block to the weaker brother. Now, he says this in Romans 14, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble. That's the same word as cause one of these little ones to sin. Scandalizo, all right? 
Um, everything is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. You go, what's that all about? Well, um, in Rome, there were those who were new believers. And most of them had come out of paganism. Most of them had worshipped Roman gods. And here's what you do. You bring your offering to the pagan temple. They would offer it to the pagan god. And then the priest would eat some of the meat. And then the rest of the meat was sold in the local temple meat shop. Right? It was a full-service deal. You went to church, and then you stopped by the butcher shop afterwards, and you got your meat. And it had been sacrificed to an idol. And some Christians were saying, should I eat it or not? I mean, I want nothing to do with paganism. And every time I cut into it, I can't help but associate it with the pagan temple. So I don't think I should eat it. And Paul's saying, you know what? I have no problem eating it, Paul, Paul says. And a lot of other Christians have no problem eating it. But others do. Don't just go to that weaker brother and say, come on! Eat that, yeah, that's right, <laughs> teaching, teaching him how to preach, right? Come on! All right. <laughs> Just eat the pork chop. Paul is saying his conscience hasn't been freed up to partake in that behavior. We can do that as Christians. Oh, come on, you legalists. Just try it. We are warned... We're to have an attitude of treating God's children with gentleness and not causing them to sin, rather than, come on, you wimp, just do it. So we can entice others to sin. Another way we can cause them to sin is just through example, especially in our own families. You know, that's why, that's why the Apostle Paul says, before you make a guy an elder, look at his family. Because he can fake it everywhere else, but his kids are going to take on who he is. Right? Now, um, let me give you, this is kind of a classic example of how uh, example affects generations of people. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, the great, preacher who lived in the 1700s. Um, Edwards, God used Edwards to bring about a great revival called the Great Awakening. During his day and age, there was an atheist by the name of Juke. Juke was um, a hard drinker, adverse to steady toil. He had numerous children, many of them not his own wife. And um, somebody traced about a thousand descendants of Jonathan Edwards, and they traced about a thousand descendants of uh, Mr. Juke. And look at the effect, the result. It says, of the 1,026 descendants of Max Juke, 300 were convicts, 27 murderers, 190 were prostitutes, and 509 were either alcoholics or drug addicts. Juke's had cost the state of New York almost $1.4 million dollars to house, institutionalize, and treat the family of the deviants. Now, Edwards, by contrast, the 929 descendants of Jonathan Edwards include 13 college presidents, 86 college professors, 430 ministers, 314 war veterans, 75 authors, 100 lawyers, well, you can't win them all, uh, 30 judges, 66 physicians, 
and 80 holders of public office, including three U.S. senators, seven congressmen, three mayors of large cities, governors of three states, a vice president of the United States, and a controller of the United States Treasury. Right. You see, we can cause our descendants, little ones in our house, to sin simply by our example. But then, so there's, there's hey, come on, you can sin uh, by enticement, then there's just my example. And then there's a, a third category, I'm going to just call it exclusion. It's not by what you do, it's by what you don't do. By not living a godly life, what does it teach our kids? Look at this. A study once disclosed that if both mom and dad attend church regularly, 72% of their children remain faithful. They continue following the Lord. If only dad attends, 55 remain faithful. If only mom attends... 15%, only 15% remain faithful. If neither attend regularly, only 6% remain faithful. Okay, now I know these are, are sociological statistics. But by simply not participating in what God calls us to do, we can entice little ones to sin within our own home. Right? Now, um, let, me, let me close with this. Jesus, in essence, is saying, woe be to you who cause little ones, believers, to sin. And then, kind of as a, as a parenthesis, he talks about the fact that we, therefore, need to fight sin in our life. Okay? Now, understand, we've already understood the cross. We are saved not by works. We are saved 100% completely by what Jesus did for us on the cross. Right? But now that we're saved, do we just go, oh, I love grace? Yes, you, you do say, I love grace. But that grace should empower you to fight your sin all the more. Not just relax in your sin. Right? So he goes on and he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And he's going to say, all right, now, woe to those who sin. So here's what you should do about it. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. He is saying those who don't fight sin tenaciously are going to hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. Right? Now, um, you go, what's going on here? I thought we were saved by grace. This seems to be saying you better fight. And by, by the way, Jesus is using hyperbole. 
Hyperbole is exaggerated language. Um, you really don't need to chop off your hand or pluck out your eye. But once we say it's hyperbole, let's not lose the main point. You are to fight against sin tenaciously. This seems to be saying that you, you get out of hell by fighting sin. No. No. You are saved by faith alone. But true faith not only connects you to Christ and you are forgiven, true faith is accompanied by regeneration, a new life, a new heart, a new hatred for sin. And your life should now be characterized by tenaciously fighting against sin, not by kicking back and enjoying it. It's not perfection, but it's a new direction. All right? Thank you. Um, there's a Johnny Cash album called Redemption. And on it, there's a picture of a black dog with white spots and a picture of a white dog with black spots. The black dog with white spots, that's him before he was saved. In essence, sinful, with a few white spots. And now that he's saved, he's been forgiven and redeemed, and his life is cleaning up. And he's still got a few black spots. Okay? Another way to put it, when you get saved, it's like being transformed from a pig to a lamb. Now, the lamb may still fall in the mud, but he wants to get out of the mud, whereas the pig is quite at home in the mud. Right? Um, I was going to read you a quote from John Piper. Have I ever mentioned Piper? <laughs> By the way, um, this week, Todd and I and Caleb and Adam and Anna went to, to see John Piper live. He was at Wheaton College. Right? Um, <laughs> it was all right, you know. <laughs> so, there's John Piper and... That was it. So um, I was going to read a quote from John Piper, but, and I had it in my sermon, and then I looked at my sermon this morning, and the font was too small, so I increased the size of the font so I could read it, and I cut out the John Piper illustration. But I'm going to tell you the John Piper illustration. He says he once was speaking to a group of high school students about the need to fight lust. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says if you commit uh, you can commit adultery by performing the act or by lusting in your heart. Therefore, pluck out your eye, chop off your hand. And he says, you need, Christians, you need to fight lust with the tenacity of chopping off your hand and plucking out your eye, or you will go to hell. And a kid came up to him afterwards and he said, so do you believe you can lose your salvation? Well, if you know anything about John Piper, you know he does not believe you can lose your salvation. So how do you fit this all together? Well, what Jesus is saying is this. It's not that you earn salvation by fighting lust. It's that if you have fled to him for salvation, what should characterize your life now is not perfection, but a new direction. A tenacity that fights against lust, that fights against lying, that fights against sin 
to the degree that you're willing to chop off your hand and pluck out your eye. And if that doesn't characterize you, guess what? You're going to hell because you're deceived about your salvation. Pastor, you just slipped in works. No. I just slipped in the power of God. If you're truly saved and he's living inside of you, you can't just relax in your sin anymore. So this is a call to examine ourselves. You know, um, after I went to the DR and broke my Achilles and was hauled out of there, I had to see that movie, 127 Hours. It's a horrible movie. It, it seemed like 127 hours. There's a guy, Eric Ralston, I think his name is, where he is mountain climbing and he falls and he's, his arm is pinned under a rock and he can't get out. At some point he realizes, I'm going to die. So, either I die of starvation, standing by a rock, or I chop off my hand. And he chops off his hand and he's alive today. Some of us in this room are convicted, and, and you're convicted that you are not saved. And the solution is not, I'm going to try harder. The solution is, I need a Savior to save me. Flee to the cross for forgiveness and the new power to fight. Right? Others, you're saved, but we... We occasionally need a fire lit under us. You know, uh, back when I originally got saved back in the 80s, it was not uncommon for um, people at college who would get saved to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to burn all my rock albums. Because if you play Led Zeppelin backwards, <laughs> you, you, it says Satan, Satan. So you're going to remember, the, I'm going to burn my albums, right? If you play your country music backwards, you get your truck back, your wife back, your dog back. Okay. Uh, <laughs> There's a Petra album, a Christian album, and I had, uh, this was back in the college days when we would do our albums backwards, and I played this Petra album backwards, and you know what it says? It says, what are you looking for the devil for when you ought to be looking for the Lord? <laughs> So, you know, you get radically saved and you burn your albums. Sometimes you just need to get radical and burn your albums. Some of you in this room need to cut off certain relationships. Because you're flirting on the edge of inappropriate behavior. Don't say, I'll get around. Cut it off. Right? And maybe it's not a sexual relationship. Maybe it's just the friends you're hanging out with. They are not helping you grow. They're sucking you back into the world. Cut it off. Some, it's pornography. What's that movie where Kirk Cameron, he finally has enough and he takes a, a baseball bat to his computer. <laughs> the internet's still out there though, right? Um, but there are, are radical steps you need to take. And by the way, it can't just be others holding you accountable. That, that is a, an important step. You've got to have a change of heart that says, I'm going to fight this. Okay? 
Others, you're in a job that forces you to lie to sell your product day after day after day, and you need to trust the Lord to give you a new job. You know, that's radical. I once heard a pastor tell his congregation, some of you know you should be tithing, and you're not. Sell your house and move into a smaller house so you can obey the Lord. Now, that's radical stuff, right? But the question is, do we just go along with the, with the world? Or do we say, Jesus is Lord, I'm going to chop off everything, pluck out my eye, chop off my hand, and follow him no matter what? That's what Jesus is calling us to do. And the good news is, if we failed, the cross is there, the safety net is there, we are saved by grace, not by works. We are children of God. All right, let me pray and come on up, worship team. Father, I pray you would do your work amongst us. I pray that those who need to flee to the cross would flee to the cross and actually become children of God. Lord, I pray for those of us who have despised your other children, that we would repent of that grievous sin. And then, Lord, if we are enticing others through bad example, through uh, actual enticement, um, Lord, may we get radical today. May we burn our albums and follow you with our whole heart. We pray it in your name. Amen.